Um, moderating our discussion today is the Reverend Dr. Thomas Bridenfall, uh, who's been Dean of Religious Life and Dean of the Chapel at Princeton University since January 2002. Before then, he was the John Henry Hobart Professor of Christian Ethics at the General Theological Seminary in New York City. An Episcopal priest, Bridenthal received a DPhil in theology from Oxford University and is the author of Christian Households, The Sanctification of Nearness, published in 1997. After Dr. Bridenthal gives a few introductory remarks, uh, our panelists will speak in the order I introduce them here and also in the order they're seated. Kristen Kalla directs the Communities Responding to the HIV-AIDS Epidemic Core Initiative, a $50 million USAID project. Prior to her appointment over this project, Kalla provided leadership for CARE's Global HIV-AIDS Response and Activities, a portfolio reaching $120 million. Kalla previously worked for UNICEF in Ethiopia, was a technical advisor at the Ministry of Health in Rwanda, and has worked in post-conflict settings with Islamic Relief in Kosovo and Relief International in Tajikistan. Kala holds an MA in African Studies and Medical Anthropology and an MPH in Maternal and Child Health, both from UCLA. Naisidiet Mason is the Human Rights Advocacy Community Involvement Advisor on HIV-AIDS and the 3 by 5 initiative at the World Health Organization, based in Geneva, Switzerland. Previously, she was the Director of International Programs with National Association of People with AIDS in Washington, D.C., a leading national NGO that advocates on behalf of people living with HIV-AIDS. Mason's career in the AIDS arena started in 1992, several years after she was diagnosed HIV-positive. A native of Kenya, Naisiadet, together with other women, founded Women Fighting AIDS in Kenya to provide women and their families with support services and raise awareness around HIV-AIDS. She was also the Vice President of Society for Women and AIDS in Africa, a Pan-African regional NGO based in Dakar, Senegal, that advocates on behalf of women and children within the family context affected by AIDS. Rachel Bagley studied medicine at Oxford University and after several years in hospital medicine, took a master's in social sciences at London University. From 1992 to 98, she worked in Zambia, setting up voluntary counseling and testing services with a Zambian NGO, CARA Counseling and Training Trust. Her projects there included care for people living with HIV, peer education, and support for families affected by HIV. From 1998 to 2002, she worked for WHO UNAIDS on access for antiretrovirals and prevention of mother-to-child transmission programs in Africa, Asia, and the former Soviet Union. Since May 2002, Rachel has been the head of the HIV unit at Christian Aid. Christian Aid is a large UK-based NGO working in more than 50 developing countries. It works through 600 community-based partner organizations, with 136 working specifically on HIV. Approximately half of the partner organizations working on HIV are faith-based. A particular objective has been to support faith-based organizations to work more effectively on HIV and to challenge HIV stigma, denial, and discrimination in churches and faith-based organizations. Rachel is also an honorary research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and has presented work at many HIV meetings and published widely. Pranessa Seal is a pioneer in mobilizing and educating black churches to become engaged in the fight against AIDS. She's a consultant to Columbia University School of Public Health 
and is an adjunct professor of ethics and AIDS at New York Theological Seminary. Ms. Seal conceived and implemented such innovative, innovative efforts as the Black Church Week of Prayer for the Healing of AIDS, a national AIDS awareness program designed specifically for the African-American community, which has engaged over 15,000 churches throughout the U.S. Ms. Seal is also the driving force behind the Black Clergy Declaration of War Against HIV and AIDS, which was signed by the leaders of every black church denomination at a White House ceremony in 1995. Vanessa founded the Balm in Gilead Incorporated in 1989, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to mobilize churches to become centers of compassion, education, and prevention in the struggle against the devastation of HIV AIDS in the black community. The Balm in Gilead's pioneering achievements have enabled thousands of churches across 17 denominations to become leaders in preventing HIV by providing comprehensive educational programs for the community and offering compassionate support to those affected by HIV and AIDS. Balm and Gilead is now mobilizing the faith community to address HIV-AIDS in Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe. Ms. Seal is the recipient of numerous congressional citations, honors, and awards, and holds an MS in Immunology from Atlanta University. In October 2003, she was named by Essence Magazine as one of 50 women shaping the world. Finally, Joao Biel is an assistant professor of anthropology here at Princeton University and will talk today about his research on grassroots AIDS activism in Brazil. His book, Vita, Anthropology in a Zone of Abandonment, is forthcoming from the University of California Press. He's currently working on a manuscript entitled Pharmaceutical Governance, the Control of AIDS in Brazil. Biel earned a PhD in religion from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1996 and a second doctorate in anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1999 and was an NIMH postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School. And without further ado, I will turn the panel over to Dean Breidenthal. Thank you. Thank you very much, much Tisa. Um, I will be very brief. Uh, for the most part, my my role is the thankless but important one of keeping, uh, the, uh, keeping track of the time. But once we have had a, ch a chance to hear from all of our panelists, uh, then um, I will um, offer a, a brief summary of some of the themes that have emerged and then invite uh, questions, uh, comment from, from the audience, and a conversation among our panelists. So without uh, further ado, I'm going to turn over uh, the microphone to Kristen Kala. Good evening. As mentioned, my name is Kristen Kala, and I'm the director of the CORE Initiative. And I'll just tell you briefly what the CORE Initiative is. Um, I actually work for CARE USA, and CARE manages a global U.S. government-funded program uh, that supports community and faith-based responses worldwide. We have partners representing the World Council of Churches, the International Center for Research on Women in Washington, D.C., the International HIV-AIDS Alliance in the U.K., and Johns Hopkins University Center for Communications. We also have over 70 resource organizations worldwide that work with us, and it is in that spirit that I am here representing this partnership. Uh, we have presence in over 90 countries worldwide, and we partner with community-based or secular responses as well as religious affiliates. And that is a multi-religious response at country level. We work with Buddhist groups, Christian in terms of Protestants and Catholics, Hindu, Muslims, Jewish organizations, independent churches, and traditional faiths through this project. 
The core initiative is dedicated to supporting an inspired and effective and inclusive response to the causes and consequences of HIV AIDS by strengthening the capacity of community and faith-based groups worldwide. And we do that through a variety of ways listed here. That's all I'm going to tell you about the project, and there's information outside if you'd like further information. I'm going to go into what, what I've been asked to talk about here. Uh, but before talking about specific faith-based responses, just some um, very important factors that are critical for effective local responses, whether those are delivered by faith or community-based responses. Um, and a couple of things. One is it's important to remember that we're here and we've got to work to empower communities to take ownership of the issue. Uh, both of the problem and of the solution. And what's, what's central to that is ensuring that people living with HIV are at the center of that response. Uh, we also have to remember that effective and sustained local responses often require facilitation from a person or other organizations. And that's what you'll see represented here on this panel in terms of how we work with local groups to help support uh, their responses and build their capacity. There's also strong evidence base based within non-faith as well as faith responses and that we must consider and incorporate the evidence-based programming effectively. We have lessons learned from countries like Thailand, Uganda, Zambia, also Senegal, and we should apply lessons learned from these experiences and principles where possible and appropriate. And we're not really certain whether we can apply all lessons learned across the board in terms of other communities. And I'm hoping some of the dialogue in the Q&A will speak to that. And to also remember that stigma is one of the principal barriers to effective programming in HIV AIDS. We also need to support and improve scale up local responses, strengthen links between prevention, care, and support activities. And women, in particular girls, are vulnerable groups at high risk of infection. Special attention must be paid to focus on their responses. So what's, I'm going to list what is special uh, about faith responses. And we know that, in, of course, in Africa, many people have said where there is a church, there is always a health post in a school. And churches have long been a history of providing health care and improving literacy. And we'll hear more examples of that from the panelists here as well. Islamic teaching also emphasized that the health and well-being of society um, as much as of the individual. And so I'm going to talk mostly about Islamic responses later in my presentation. We also know that the world's religions reach out to virtually every community in the most remote corners of Earth. So those of us working for development organizations, if you're looking at sustainable programming, we must work through the faith networks that are out addressing the needs of the rural poor. Many have also been working with little support from outside since the beginning of the epidemic. And we must all be working to ensure that responsible and effective channels of resources are providing support to these faith networks. Primary prevention methods espoused by major religions are valid means to prevent HIV. And often primary providers of local and social services, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, are through faith networks. They're important partners for addressing stigma and behavior change, and faith networks have the ability to influence attitudes and behaviors of community members. Religion has also played a negative impact on the epidemic. It's complicated. The interwoven issues of religious doctrines, ethics, morality, and the official positions of religious hierarchies, when juxtaposed with issues such as sexuality, gender, HIV-AIDS, can be quite diametrical. This is especially challenging when we're looking at issues around condom use as a means of prevention, addressing gender issues, and human rights. Faith leaders may also have contributed to self-stigmatization driven by religious beliefs, which is also common among followers who find themselves HIV positive. One example of a very exciting group um, that some of you may know about, Reverend Gideon from the Anglican Church in Uganda, 
He has started a network for African network of religious leaders living positively, has had a great impact in terms of bringing both Christian and Muslim leaders in Africa together to build networks um, in the case of South Africa and Kenya. And if you have questions, we can talk about that some more. I'm going to focus on how you would work through a, a faith response, and primarily the Muslim uh, perspective, because oftentimes at these kinds of fora, we don't hear enough about the uh, Islamic perspective. But if we're looking at Islam in terms of HIV prevention, um, just the name Islam, so you know, means peace and submission, and Muslims seek to achieve peace by submitting to the will of God. Um, over 1 billion followers in the world, and 270 of them are in 51 countries in Africa. Unlike the Catholic Church, for example, there is no central authority to unify Muslim responses. So this is certainly a challenge when you're working at community level because you work through each of the mosques at community level and oftentimes an Islamic Supreme Council at country level. If we're going to look at the Muslim values and strategies uh, as they apply to prevention, promiscuity is forbidden in Islam. So this is something that if you're working through Muslim communities to develop materials, to train the imams, uh, to work with the, uh, the uh, congregation, if you can say. Um, this is something that comes from the doctrine. Also, answers for the Muslim response to prevention. They look at a change in sexual behavior as something that is considered part of Islam and a return to ethical values and reinstating the primacy of families. In Islamic law, the Sharia, um, it governs various aspects of human behavior, and we have found that imams and activists combating HIV-AIDS in Muslim communities refer to various aspects of the Sharia in their prevention efforts. For example, Islam strongly prohibits two kinds of sexual relations, and this is between spouses, of course. Vaginal intercourse during menstruation and anal intercourse at all times, and this is certainly critical because these are two um, increased risks in terms of um, uh, sexual relations. Islam also honors the pleasure of sex as a gift from God if practiced and sanctioned in, in marriage. So certainly important messages if we're looking at prevention methods um, within the Muslim communities. Islam also encourages early marriage and premarital sex and extramarital sex are condoned. While Islam encourages having children, a childless marriage is equally valid. This is really important for if we're looking at discordant couples and stigma in communities where oftentimes couples are not able to have children. So certainly within Islam, uh, there's no stigma around that. Surprisingly enough, and I always find this a surprise to people, condoms are accepted as a means of family planning in Islam. And in fact, there is a condom factory in Iran. So this is something that has been useful to work through the Sharia and the Hadith to extend that on into HIV AIDS. But certainly it's more difficult sometimes to talk about condoms as prevention to HIV. But if you're looking at family planning programs, you can integrate your responses as part of that. Islam also encourages sexual and family life education as part of the Sharia within the family setting. So this is beneficial for, the, for those of us working at community level because we can incorporate balanced teachings including physical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects of sexuality. Genital washing after intercourse and male circumcision are also parts of the Islamic tradition, two issues that also decrease transmission um, after intercourse. And certainly the intake of alcohol and drugs are stri strictly prohibited, so th these have positive implications for decreasing risk behavior. While Islam acknowledges different roles for women and men due to physical uh, differences, in many areas it strongly advocates for treatment of men and women in equal terms. And again, I also find that this is surprising um, to some of the audiences we speak to. 
Um, under Islam, women have a right to financial independence, to own their own property, to receive inheritance, to reuse, uh, to remarry, and to divorce, and to use their own name. Certainly very important issues if you're looking at the status of women and rights issues in the community. Uh, many discriminatory practices against women in Muslim communities are due to culture and not religion. So again, going back to the religion doctrine is important. That's all I'm going to mention. If you'd like more information on the project, this is the information in terms of our website and our listserv, and I encourage you to sign up, and I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, it, it's really an honor to be here, and oftentimes when I'm called to meetings such as these, I'm the person who comes and provides the reality of what we're talking about. When we talk about HIV and AIDS, we want to move away from the numbers, and we want to deal with the reality. And my um, brief presentation today is going to be, or it's going to address uh, two roles. One is the work that we are doing at WHO, World Health Organization, in scaling up ARV treatment for people living with HIV and AIDS in the developing world. And the other piece, which is what I'll start with, is putting a human face and talking of issues of stigma and how oftentimes religious institutions have perpetuated stigma and how they can probably do a better role of, of, of helping reduce that stigma. As you heard, I am a native of Kenya, and I was diagnosed <coughs> HIV positive 17 years ago. And um, it was interesting because at the time, many of us, I was married, I had two children, and of course HIV, I mean, women who were married didn't get HIV. How could they? They're married, they're in a monogamous relationship. But because of cultural reasons or cultural uh, behaviors that we, we have in our own country, and in many parts of Africa, our men have multiple partners, and so HIV found me in the home. Now, oftentimes when I've dealt with um, um, faith-based institutions, there's, there's this condemnation, and I often try to explain to them, look, it found me in the house. I wasn't out there looking for it. And so um, just compassion, I think, is, is something that's really needed. Anyway, so I was diagnosed HIV positive before my husband, and I experienced a lot of stigma from the community, from my family. I lost my husband to AIDS two years later, and um, four years after that, I lost my job. Now, if you know anything about the developing countries, uh, once you lose your job and you're HIV positive, they test you before they give you another job. So if you're HIV positive, you can't get a job. So luckily enough, I was able to sort of put a small wooden kiosk together where I sold bread and sugar and, you know, basic things like that, and I was able to support my children that way. And then um, I became ill in 1997, I came down with pneumonia, and I'm happy to say that um, one of the uh, persons who was really, really instrumental to my getting better was my priest. I'm a Catholic, 
And this was the first person from a religious institution who was very, very compassionate, very, very understanding. I had thought this was a big one, I'm going to die, and I just thought this is time now to begin to sort of talk those things over. And he was awesome. For a whole week, he came every day to my home to speak with me, to counsel me, and that was wonderful. And if that's the kind of role that you know um, our leaders in the faith-based institutions played, I think that would be great. Um, that same year after the pneumonia, I uh, began realizing that unless I did something, my I probably wouldn't live very much longer, and I wouldn't be able to look after my children. So through some miracle, I say it's a miracle, I was able to come to this country and, and get access to antiretroviral therapy. And with that, that gave me a new lease on life. It gave me hope. It gave me the will to continue and to, to look after my children and to give back. And these drugs made a difference in my life. They allowed me to go back to school where I was able to, to get my, my undergrad degree and to do a master's in public health, in maternal child health. And, you know, my path throughout to the World Health Organization, where I'm working today, which, which is quite an achievement for a person who, once I was diagnosed, I was told, you're not going to live beyond two years. So the, the, the essence, or, or what I'm trying to say with this story is that it's, it's so critical to make sure that people living with HIV and AIDS not only have access to treatment, ARV therapy, which we know works very well, but also to have support from faith-based organizations, from their community. And we were told where there's a church, there's a school, and yeah. So, so the church has such an important role to keep people alive. Now I'm going to turn over and start on my presentation because I don't have very much time. Talk a little bit about our work with um, WHO and, and uh, treatment scale-up. Um, not sure I know how to move this. Okay, um, you probably know about the numbers that are there. We know that drugs exist, my story tells that, but these are not accessible <coughs> in the developing world. The number of people that should be or should have access to treatment today is six million in the developing country. And the number of people that are currently on treatment in the developing countries are only 400,000. The deficit is what, five million, 600,000? The number of people who died from AIDS in 2002 is 3.1 million. How do you, oops, did I go too far? Yeah, okay. Um, the number of people living with HIV and AIDS as of 2002 is 42 million. Of course, it's getting worse. Those infected were 5 million. And again, the deaths are 3.1 million. And these deaths are needless. They don't need to happen. Now, WHO has developed in its 3 by 5 strategy, treat 3 million people by the year 2005. We have developed an integrated, comprehensive approach that focuses on strengthening prevention and ensuring access or scaling up treatment with a, um, focusing on a human rights approach. And what we're trying to do is build on the UN Special Sessions, the, the goals that were set with the UN Special Sessions um, in 2001. And we're going a step further and saying we can and we should treat three million people by 2005. I know it's an ambitious goal, but it can, it is doable. Oops. Our director came on board in June last year, and he said lack of access to antiretroviral treatment is a global health emergency, and it is. AIDS is, is and continues to kill more people than any war that we know about. We know from research 
that ARV treatment is re feasible in resource-limited countries. Many people would like to say, well, it can't be done because, because of many things. I don't know, because we don't have refrigerators, because they can't tell time, and all those um, myths that we've heard about before. But examples in Brazil have shown that 80% drop in the number of hospitalization per patient, 50% drop in mortality, 70% drop in, mor in morbidity, and a net savings to the um, hospitals of US dollars, 200 million. In Malawi, which is in Africa, adherence was at 94%. CD4 gain after 18 months was 180. And utilization of nurses and non-medical health workers. I'm sorry, what's CD4? Um, the, the, the count of, what is it? What's count? What's the count? Sorry about that. <laughs> um, this is in Malawi. And then in Haiti. Adherence supported by community. So the community has a huge role to play. And when we say the community, we're talking about NGOs, we're talking about FBOs. So again, scale up of ARV, we're talking three million on treatment by the year 2005. Now the resources are currently available outside of WHO. Our three by five strategy needs 218 million to begin implementing. To date, we've only received 5.5 million from DFID in UK. That sounds like a joke. Now, the monies that are available there, WHO has no money, from Global Fund Rounds 1, 2, and 3, and World Bank MAP project, is a total of about four and a half million, and the distribution is as you see it there. Majority of it going to, to Sub-Saharan Africa. With the monies that we have today, by the year 2005, we will have been able to treat 935,000 people. There is a gap of 2,065, which will not be treated unless we can raise resources if we're to meet our goal of 3 million. One of the key issues that have arisen with the Global Fund and the MAP project is that over the years, the disbursement of resources is very, very slow. And WHO feels it can play a great role in terms of sort of unclogging that or, or unblocking these resources so they can move faster to the countries so countries can begin to provide treatment to those who are living with HIV. Now, funding is what we're not getting. But what we've decided to do is focus on our core comparative advantages. And what are those? We have developed simplified treatment guidelines as well as tools to track progress and impact of ARV treatment programs. That's one. We've also expanded training and capacity development. We are working with others to um, develop the tools for health professionals and other cadres, including community supporters. That's, that's very critical. And we're also, we've also established an AIDS, medicines, and diagnostic service to assist countries to procure best-priced quality drugs in the simplest ways. If you've heard of fixed-dose combination, WHO was very instrumental in, in, in moving that forward. And then finally, strengthening health systems to support the ART delivery, including drug procurement, distribution, capacity building, and regulatory um, changes. So those are the things that we've decided to focus on because that's what we're good at. So who are our partners? NGOs and FBOs would be included there in communities, people living with HIV and AIDS foundations, private sector, bilaterals, all those groups you see there. And in the scale up of AR ARTs, what is the role? What is the role of, of, of FBOs, of NGOs, of CBOs? Who recognizes, together with others, in this initiative, who and UNAs are coordinating the effort? And it's not who is going to 
be the group that provides the treatment. We're just coordinating those who are already doing it. Today, from my understanding, in Africa, 48% of healthcare is provided by FBOs. So FBOs are already doing a lot of work. They probably need support to scale that up. So we know that these groups are central in the scale-up of ART. They have a unique expertise and comparative advantage that we should build on. They have tremendous experience in the country, and they're key in achieving the 3 by 5 target. Without these groups, we can't do it. My last slide. So what kind of role can you play, or can, can FBOs and NGOs play? Well, they can pressure governments. We have a number of different groups out there. We have, we have Pepper, we have World Bank, we have governments in the Western world. None of them are giving us resources. There's a lot of money floating out there, but we can't seem to get these resources. And so we're asking you to work with us to try and get the resources. Linking with similar groups in the developing countries, sharing experiences and lessons learned, assisting in capacity building when requested. Um, and finally, take who and others to task and tell us what we can do better. Because again, as I mentioned, you have a lot of experience, or, or the NGOs and the FBOs, they have a lot of experience. And we need to learn from you. We need to learn from each other, and we need to do this together. And on the last note, in terms of FBOs reducing stigma, for a long time, the, the faith-based religions or, or institutions has been known to propagate the stigma. I think they would be, they are in a position to really help reduce stigma by being more compassionate and being less judgmental. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. I feel very honored and rather um, um, terrified by this experience. Um, I, I come from, from the UK um, and work for an organization called Christian Aid. Christian Aid is um, one of the largest um, UK-based international NGOs. Um, it, as its name suggests, originated from uh, the churches in, in the UK and, and, and started about 50 years ago and continues to receive a lot of funding from individuals, often from churches and, and faith-based groups. It, ha it is non-implementing. Um, we don't actually do any of the work ourselves. We just support partner organizations, about 600 partner organizations in 50 poor countries. Um, and our work focuses on development work, advocacy and campaigning, human rights, and humanitarian work. We have two priorities. Um, one of these is HIV, and our HIV priorities focus on advocacy. Um, uh, in the UK, we um, spend a lot of, of time um, lobbying the government to increase um, spending on HIV, and I feel rather ashamed that we haven't been very successful in getting more funding for the 3 by 5 but um, we continue to meet regularly with um, the UK government to try to um, increase their spending on HIV. Um, we work with the churches in the UK because we feel they have a role and responsibility in raising awareness about HIV in the UK, um, working with uh, uh, faith communities in the UK, um, and increasing funding for partner churches in developing countries. Um, we also um, 
have been putting efforts into increasing funding for orphans and vulnerable children um, in, uh, in the 50 countries where we work, and community-based support for the 3x5. Um, as as uh, Nice was explaining, the 3x5 is the, is the WHO initiative, but we feel that community organisations are essential if this is going to work. Getting the drugs there, which is the emphasis often of um, national and international governments, is only a very small part of the puzzle. Unless people can have access to testing and counselling, unless stigma in communities can be challenged, and unless people who are taking um, antiretroviral drugs can be supported in the long term to continue taking them um, and have adequate food um, and access to clean water, this initiative will, will not fail. So um, uh, we, we, again, are trying to um, advocate to the UK government and, uh, and to PEPFAR that there is a massive importance for community-based organisations in this work. Um, in our HIV work, we have uh, a number of priorities um, with, with which we support our partner organisations. Um, we support faith-based organisations. Um, we are particularly um, uh, keen on supporting groups of people living with HIV in, um, uh, um, because we feel without involvement of people living with HIV, stigma, discrimination, which are big barriers to HIV prevention and care, um, will not be overcome. We support um, OVC projects, orphans and vulnerable children, as long as they are supported to remain in their communities. We do not support um, uh, orphanages, which we feel make um, uh, children more vulnerable and isolated. We support HIV education for young people. And because of a lot of our work is um, humanitarian, we have particularly strong partnerships in post-conflict countries in Sierra Leone, DRC, um, Angola, um, South Sudan, and we emphasise integrating HIV into, those, into work in those countries. And finally, um, we work um, with, with partner organisations who do community-based care, and these are often faith-based organisations relying to a large extent on, uh, on volunteers from church communities. As I said, Christian Aid has two priorities. One is HIV and the other is fair trade um, because we feel that any type of uh, um, uh, uh, development work is really a sticking plaster unless you can actually challenge the things that make countries poor. And a large part of the reason that um, many countries in Africa are poor is because of unfair trade. Um, and uh, so Christian Aid has been campaigning um, and continues to do so on, on making trade rules fair. Um, I was asked by, by Tom to talk about the political role of, of Christian Aid and as I say we feel that we are, in the, particularly in the UK, a campaigning organisation. We are very um, uh, radical and we um, have a huge community-based support. We have 350,000 community workers in the UK who work on campaigning um, and, make, and building a movement to <coughs> things that keep poor countries um, poor. And these are the areas that we campaign on. We campaign on um, the 0.7%, um, fair trade, debt, and, and on HIV um, policy. And for example, um, we've been campaigning recently on um, uh, challenging the abstinence-only stance, which is being very much promoted um, 
by particularly by, by PEPFAR. Um, PEPFAR is the president, as, as I'm sure you all know, president of the, of the United States HIV Emergency Fund, this 15, million pound, 15 billion dollar um, fund, which is obviously a, um, a very admirable um, initiative, but um, the abstinence only um, part of it is something that we feel is, is somewhat misguided. Um, in fact, I can leave this for you. We've, we've produced a, um, a, um, a book called Dying to Learn, which is um, which brings together all the in, all the studies that have looked at um, HIV education in young people and really show that there's no evidence that abstinence-only programs have any benefit in reducing HIV transmission. And in fact, if young people are given a comprehensive HIV education. Um, including information about condoms, this has, um, this has a much greater beneficial effect as far as um, reducing number of sexual partners, decreasing the age of sexual debut, and decreasing unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, and HIV. So um, we, we have used this document, and it's, we've translated it into um, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and French as a lobbying document for churches and as a challenging document um, Christian Aid, um, as the name suggests, has an affinity with faith-based partners, um, but we work with all faiths and with none. Um, and this is our this is um, um, just a, a small indication of, of our faith-based partners across um, various geographical regions. And you can see that in most most countries we work. Um, about 50-50 about with, with faith-based or secular partners on HIV. And we are not an HIV organisation, although we have 136 partner organisations working on HIV. In general, we, we do not favour um, a vertical approach to HIV development work. We favour integrating it into existing programmes. Um, so the vast majority of our, of our partners are integrated. Those that are specialists tend to be um, PLHA organisations because we think that they are particularly important um, uh, to support. And how does faith communities impact on, on, on Christian Aid's work? We are supported by churches in the UK and Ireland and we work with, with them uh, lobbying us about issues and with us uh, lobbying them. So that's a very mutual um, uh, relationship. In Europe, we work very closely with the Ecumenical Advocacy Alliance, um, which is the voice of faith-based or um, uh, organizations or, um, or development agencies of churches in the, in the UK, in Europe, and in the States. And we work with ACRADEV, which is the, again, the network of um, often church organisations working on development. Globally, we have a very close relationship with the World Council of Churches, particularly the EHIA programme, um, which it works throughout Africa, um, coordinating HIV training um, and curriculum for, for priests and, and ministers. We work with a large number of interfaith networks, particularly in Asia um, and, in, uh, and, and in 
the former Soviet Union. We work with Council of Churches, and we work with, with um, networks of, of uh, Anglican churches in Africa. And I'll just give you an example of a program that we're working with at the moment. This is the Church of the Province of Southern Africa. Um, and the Anglican Church in, in Southern Africa, which I believe is the same as the Episcopal Church in, in, in America, um, this one province covers um, six countries, so it's an absolutely mammoth task. South Africa, Namibia, Swaziland, Lesotho, and Mozambique. And this is the largest faith-based program that DFID, that DFID is the, the USAID equivalent in the UK, has ever funded. We've managed to um, uh, um, get five, $5 million funding from DFID for this program. And the reason why DFID has decided to fund a faith-based organisation, because it's a very unsexy thing for um, DFID to fund, they really do not like funding faith-based communities, um, faith-based projects, is they realise that in this part of, of Africa, coverage is huge. In countries like uh, Angola, where there are very few roads that work, there's very, there's very poor health and education infrastructure, the church is there. Um, in the remotest parts of, of, of South Africa and Mozambique, the church is there um, and working in the community. So if you're going to work effectively on HIV, you must involve the church. The church has huge influence, both for good and for bad. Um, and if church leaders are engaging in HIV in a positive and effective way, they can do a huge amount to reduce stigma. If, however, they ignore HIV or talk about it in a, um, in a, in a, in a condemnatory way, um, they have a huge um, power for, for, um, for increasing stigma. Um, as, I think, as I think you mentioned, much of healthcare in this part of the world is, is, done, by, is done by the church. Um, nearly 50% of healthcare delivery is, 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 is carried out by the church. Priests and ministers have a long tradition of counselling and therefore should be able to take up a mantle of counselling um, and issues around spiritual support and death and dying. Again, they have a huge um, potential to do this, um, but they can also cause much harm if they don't do this in a, in a sympathetic way. The challenges of this programme are the challenges of working in any faith community. Stigma and denial are huge in many of these countries um, and often perpetuated by the church. The church often has conservative attitudes, um, often talking about abstinence. And I'll give you a little anecdote from when I was in Zambia. Um, the churches were very anti-premarital um, uh, um, sex, which is fine in theory, but where you have 70% of young people being, young women being either pregnant or um, uh, um, having um, or, or having babies by the time they're 19, talking about abstinence is a bit of a um, is a bit of a nonsense. And in fact, there was a big program which was carried out by the Seventh Day Adventist Church which developed um, abstinence-only clubs, and everyone was issued with a nice certificate. And we did some focus group work there, and uh, one of the boys said, yes, I've got my abstinence-only certificate. My mum's really pleased. It's stuck on the wall, and there was a big pause. Um, and he said, but of course, we don't actually do abstinence, but we've all got the certificates. 
So again, it's this, it's this kind of um, um, conservative attitudes versus the reality. The other thing which I think is often overlooked is the other priorities. These are countries that are often um, extremely poor with no, with no, in, in, with really very, very little infrastructure. Um, particularly Mozambique and Angola, um, healthcare and education systems are beyond belief. Um, you have GMPs often of less than $500 a year, um, and so people have other priorities. Stigma and denial um, still remain huge barriers. This is from a study that we have done in those, in those um, uh, seven countries. Um, and this was, this was um, very, very typical. Because it's a sexually transmitted disease, it was branded as a sinister disease, so many churches were not interested in it. And this is today in countries that have had HIV epidemics for more than 10 years, with one in four of the adults being infected. Condoms remain um, a huge problem myth. Um, I think there's this, this, this idea because people have said they're not 100% effective, um, people think that therefore having them around makes, um, makes, life, makes HIV transmission more likely rather than um, realising that they are, although not 100% effective, hugely effective in HIV prevention. I'll just um, going back to, on to the three by five um, access to ARVs um, is something that faith-based organisations can advocate and have been very successful. And in South Africa, it was the church that was very um, important in, in challenging the governments there to accept that um, that generic drugs could be used and to make. Um, ARVs much more available to people there. Quickly just looking at the successes of the churches. The churches in Africa are doing a huge amount of home-based care, they're doing a huge amount of counselling, they're supporting people um, uh, through death and dying and looking after um, orphans in the community. They're also starting to do more HIV prevention work and um, as, as was mentioned, um, there's a new group which is called Anarella, which is the um, African network of, of um, religious leaders living with HIV. And this will be, um, again, it's, it's 10 years too late, but um, um, it is really starting to challenge denial in, in communities in, in Africa. What next? Really needs to be massive scaling up of, um, of HIV work by, by faith-based organisations. Um, they start with the faith-based leaders, but they really, they're now about 30 positive leaders in, in, uh, in Africa. We need to have 3,000. Um, there needs to be massive increase in training for church workers. Um, and again, the WCC is starting this, but this needs to be really um, increased. Interfaith work um, and, and networks need to uh, be um, established, they're only just starting. And the church has to start working on evidence-based approaches rather um, than uh, just doing what it's always done. It also must look at monitoring and evaluating its work um, because again, churches 
um, are, are, have very, very poor systems for monitoring and evaluation, and this often means that they're unable to access funds um, because they can't write grant proposals, they can't um, prove that what they're doing is any good. So they need to be supported so that they can do this. And they really need to also increase lobbying um, and advocacy work um, for increasing funding for their activities and increasing access to care and treatment. Good evening. Uh, yeah, say something. <laughs> Good evening. I am Pranessa Seal, the founder and CEO of The Bomb in Gilead. So Christian Aid is above me, but we're talking about The Bomb in Gilead. In The Bomb in Gilead, we are now an international organization mobilizing faith community to address HIV and AIDS. Oftentimes, someone always asks the question, how, where did we get our name from, this bomb in Gilead, B-A-L-M? Sometimes people hear, is there a bomb somewhere? Bomb in Gilead, we take our name from the Hebrew text, the book of Jeremiah, where the prophet asks the question, is there no bomb in Gilead? And of course, we want all faith communities everywhere to be, in fact, a bomb, a healing source for HIV. And also, our reference is to an old spiritual, an old Negro spiritual that comes out of the cotton fields of South Carolina, where I'm from. And every major artist, African-American artist, has sung this song from Leotine Price to Paul Robeson to Jesse Norman to everybody. There is a bomb in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead that heals the sin-sick so, so that's our reference to uh, our name. We, all oh, my colleagues have talked about uh, the stigma of HIV and the role that faith communities play in stigma. And I just want to add my piece to that. And that is I fundamentally believe that stigma, the root of stigma, is the fundamental issue of sin. The faith community, the universal church, 22 years ago, put it out there that HIV was a sin. And that has had the most, the most impact that we have had in the world around HIV has been the fundamental belief that AIDS is a sin. All the money that has been put into HIV over 22 years, all the wonderful interventions, we still have yet to dismantle what the Universal Church put out there 22 years ago, and that is that AIDS is a sin. But we must also remember that the public health community also had a role to play in this. The public health community was giving us information that was simply not true. The public health community said that this was a gay disease. I remember when it was on the front page of a magazine that said this would never be a heterosexual Disease. I've been working this epidemic long enough. I have some history. So with all this misinformation that came about, we just cannot start with the church had such a major role to play. The church was also misguided. And of course, it was music to their ears when they heard it was a homosexual disease because for the most part, the church is against 
the homosexual community for the most part. And I remember right here, let me go personal on you, I remember right here in the United States when the African-American community heard that it was a gay white disease. We said, oh, hallelujah, it's not us this time. So let us fund come up, our, come down from the rafters and really look at where we are as a people and where everybody was hoping that it would not, this disease would not affect uh, them. But the faith community is very, very important. It is the one institution that has the reach. It reaches, it reaches way down to where the people are. The church is the people, the mosque is the people, and the leaders of the people come out of our faith institutions. I stand here talking not just about the, I talk for the African diaspora, not for, but as an organization that work with the African American, the African and the Caribbean community, I see the broad scope of HIV throughout the African diaspora. We can totally talk about Africa and 700 people, Kenyans, dying every day. Every day, 700 people dying. And we could talk about Nigeria, where 800 people are dying every day in Nigeria. We could talk about Zimbabwe, where 2,000 people are dying every week in Zimbabwe. But right here in the United States, one in every 50 African-American men are infected. Right here in the United States, one teenager becomes infected every hour. Right here in these United States, and out of those one per hour teenagers, 70% of them are African-Americans. The faith community in the African diaspora has the ability to connect. It is the faith community that connects us, not just connects in Kenya or Nigeria or Zimbabwe or Kenya or Cote d'Ivoire, all these countries where the bomb in Gilead work, but it, it connects across the pond, across the Atlantic Ocean. If you, if you move, if you drive through any African-American community here in New Jersey, and I know all of you have, you will see a church everywhere. Everywhere, a Baptist church, a Catholic church, an AME, an AME Zion. If you drive through Kenya or through Nigeria, you will see a Catholic church, an AME church, an AME Zion, a Baptist church. We are connected through our faith. We are also so historically organized through our faith. Through our faith, we have been organized for centuries because we have organized comparatively through our struggle against apartheid and colonialism and the civil rights movement. Many of you know our leaders. You know Bishop Tutu because of his fight against apartheid. You know Dr. Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton through the movement of the civil rights movement. We are organized. We are already organized. We are historically organized. Today, we are looking at those structures, those bomb and Gileads, look at those already existing organized structure to now address the biggest human rights issue that we have, which is HIV and AIDS. And that human rights struggle, uh, once again, cuts across the pond. The work that we are doing is interesting, the things that often are not talked about is that Nigeria does not know that there's a big problem of AIDS in Zimbabwe, the people. Zimbabwe doesn't know that there's a big problem of AIDS in Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire doesn't know there's a big problem of AIDS in the Caribbean, where the second highest rate of infection in the world are the Caribbean islands. 
The Caribbean islands, and most folks don't know about the problem of HIV right here in the African-American community. So the faith community also has a major role to play in communication. In communication, communicating the challenges and the problems of addressing HIV, which are comparative culturally. Culturally. Culturally in terms of faith and culturally in terms of people. The Bauman Gilead, our approach to working with HIV, working with faith communities, has been to work within the existing structures that are there. Here in America, we're now working, we started with prayer. <laughs> 15 years ago, we came up with this idea in Harlem to do a week of prayer for the healing of AIDS. I had no idea that that week of prayer would kill me one day. Uh, and if, meaning that that idea is now the bomb in Gilead working in five African countries and over 15,000 churches here in the U.S. But prayer was that cultural thing that connects us, that cultural thing that connects us. And most folks would say, well, what you doing? You just praying? Well, we're doing more than praying. Because oftentimes in our community, folks think that only in church on Sunday, we're singing and shouting and dancing. Well, there's a lot of things going on more in our church than singing and dancing and shouting. We're also organizing. We're also talking about getting out the vote. We're also talking about the school board. That's the way we do things in the church, whether we're talking about the church in Nigeria, or the mosque in Nigeria, or the mosque in Kenya, or the church right here in New Jersey. Our approach has been in Africa to look at those existing structures. For instance, example, we're working in Tanzania. In Tanzania, the Catholic Church, the Tanzania Episcopal Conference, which is the voice of the Catholic Church. Our work has been to put, establish a national HIV office within the headquarters of the Catholic Church to support with resources, with leadership development, with technical skills, to make the Catholic Church the voice of HIV in the nation. Our approach has been to work with the Protestant churches in Tanzania, the Christian Council of Tanzania. They have a headquarters of over 14 denominations. The bishops of those 14 denominations sit at the table within the Christian Council of Tanzania. The Bomb and Gilead work has been to put a national office within that body to be the voice, the HIV voice coming out of the faith community to talk to the Protestant community. The National Council of Muslims of Tanzania, known as Bakwada, the voice of the Muslims in Tanzania. Our work has been to put a national office within the headquarters of the voice of the Muslim community. Now what else has happened? In the course of this, the Muslims, the Catholics, and the Protestants are now working together around HIV. That is the miracle of the day. That has been our approach in, in Kenya. We're working with the Anglican Church of Kenya, the Pentecostal churches, Lord have mercy, and Supkim, the National Council of Kenya Muslims. The P Anglicans, the Pentecostals, and the Muslims. That is a miracle in Kenya. I tell you, God works in mysterious days. Somebody need to say amen. amen. In Nigeria, in Nigeria, my beloved country, we had to go in and establish a whole new thing. 
Because when you brought the leadership of the Christian community and the Supreme Council of Islamic Affairs of Nigeria, they said the only way this is going to work, Bomb and Gilead, is that you have to establish a whole new thing with Christians and Muslims working side by side because of the political nature of Christian and Muslims in Nigeria. And today there is now the Interfaith HIV AIDS Council of Nigeria with Christians and Muslims in that office addressing HIV side by side. But guess what happened? The miracle. People come off the street to the HIV office just to see Christians and Muslims working together. They don't come to the office to talk about HIV. They say, what? Christians and Muslims are working together? A miracle in Nigeria. In Cote d'Ivoire, we're working with the Catholic, the Methodist, and the Pentecostal churches. Once again, three denominations that never spoke to each other have come together to work together around HIV and, HIV, HIV and AIDS. And in Zimbabwe, where 80% of the country is Christians, the Catholic and the Protestants already have an umbrella organization. And the Bomb and Gilead, we have established a national office within that agency, their office, giving them the resources and the support and the technical assistance to be that voice for the people by the people. Oftentimes, I'm also asked about the issues of condoms and abstinence. And the response to that is that we meet the church, the faith community, where they are. Where they are. In our community, with these, the house is not just on fire, the house is almost burned down. I'm a scientist, so I do believe in condoms. I believe with the house is on fire, like the house is raging in my community, all systems on deck, we need everything working. Everything. When you've got 700 people dying in one nation every day, and 800 people dying every day in Nigeria, and one kid becoming HIV infected every hour in this country, we need every intervention we need. But we meet you where you are. If you want to talk about abstinence and that's your comfortability, please talk about abstinence. But let's be clear, don't preach abstinence, teach abstinence. There is a difference. There is a difference. And for those other organizations, NGOs in our community, that's supporting this distribution of condoms, let's support them. We need everything with these kind of, this kind of fire. Everything. But oftentimes, because of outside forces, we are asked to choose. Well, we've got to choose abstinence, or we've got to choose condoms. Our position is that choose your weapon, but support every weapon. Choose what you're going to do. If you're going to work with the youth, work with the youth. If you're going to work with women, work with women. If you're going to work with the gay community, work with the gay community. Work with somebody. Do something. Do something with this kind of devastation that we are seeing in our community. I think my 10 minutes is up. Thank you. Good evening. I want to, to thank uh, Dean Bredenthal and Tisa Wenger for inviting me to participate in this panel. And uh, the short presentation I will give, uh, I'm calling it Managing Life Through Religion. The Brazilian AIDS program combines prevention with free distribution of antiretrovirals, and it's widely touted as a model for stemming the AIDS crisis in the developing world. 
In the face of the devastation brought up by AIDS, the unlikely availability of a vaccine in the near future, and the relatively few interventions that seem replicable, this is a most welcome success story. It emerges not out of utopian principles or privileged contexts, but from being near to desperate realities and redirecting seemingly inflexible commercial scientific and state logics towards equitable outcomes. State, civil society, science, and market restructuring play an essential role in any understanding of the Brazilian AIDS policy. I don't have time to elaborate on the many interactions and intricacies involved, and my presentation will be a brief exploration of the place of religion in this model policy, both institutionally and in lived experience. AIDS emerged in Brazil in the early 80s, concurrently with the demise of a military state. Its growth coincided with the country's democratization amid a ruined economic and social welfare system. First reports show that AIDS was most prevalent in urban centers among men who had sex with men, but this epidemiological profile would rapidly and dramatically change, and soon. If in 1985, 79% of the reported AIDS cases were individuals who had either finished high school or had a college degree, 10 years later, 78% were illiterate or had only finished elementary school. In 1983, there were 40 men for one woman with AIDS. In 1990, the ratio was 6 to 1, and now it's almost 1 to 1. In those early years of AIDS, amid panic, stigma, and fear, and in the absence of international and national support and discriminatory official religious actions, Solidarity and effective responses sprung from grassroots movements, most notably from gay activists who pressured local, municipal, and regional health services for information and treatment and carried out their own prevention campaigns. In Sao Paulo, for example, such a mobilization led to the creation in 1983 of a statewide public health AIDS program, the first of its kind in Latin America. And it was headed by Paulo Teixeira, who, who, who has been at the at the forefront of the, of, of the WHO AIDS program. They had in common a progressive commitment, political commitment, and understood the need to integrate information and care, and also pragmatically established alliances with health technicians and philanthropic and religious organizations. This is the first point I want to make. AIDS sufferers themselves initially took over the role of state and religious institutions. They at once replaced them and tried to engage them. And this proved to be quite productive. Just as AIDS strengthened identity politics, it also became a new space of political action for people who had been active in all kinds of democratic struggles and in liberation theology-inspired community-based work. The AIDS epidemic also occasioned the creation of several new non-governmental organizations throughout the country, bringing together AIDS victims, progressive intellectuals, and people who migrated from other social movements who now had less public force and international attention and funds. These AIDS organizations galvanized demands and actions aimed at securing citizenship and human rights mandated by the new progressive constitution of 1988, the post-military constitution, which made health everyone's right and the state's duty. This universal right would have to find ways to be realized amid the country's wholesale neoliberalization and state restructuring which marked the 1990s. AIDS activists representing socially vulnerable groups, such as homosexuals and sex workers, developed a strong public voice in the dispute over access to ever more scarce public and medical resources, 
all the while realizing prevention campaigns that reflected the country's sexual cultures and pushed actually the envelope of tolerance and solidarity. While the understaffed and understate and, uh, and understa while the underfunded and understaffed state public health services were increasingly paralyzed in their capacity to address the growing complexities of AIDS, and here we're speaking about the turn of the 80s and the 90s, grassroots space of healthcare known as houses of support, casas de apoio, many of them religiously motivated, emerged and bore the medical and social burden of the AIDS crisis among the poorest. And this is the second point I want to make. AIDS pastoral sites worked as appendages of public health. Such infrastructures became key substrates for the implementation of a centralized, efficient, and transparent national HIV-AIDS management that was made possible as of 1992 through a World Bank loan. AIDS activists, politicians, economists, and scientists organized an impressive governmental and non-governmental administrative apparatus that is believed to have contained the epidemic's growth through massive and community-mediated prevention projects. In 1997, the Brazilian government began to freely provide antiretrovirals to all of the country's registered HIV-AIDS cases. Approximately 135,000 patients are now taking AIDS therapies. The availability of these treatments and laboratory testing, funded by the Brazilian government at an annual cost of some $2,000 per patient, is said to have reduced the demand for hospital services and AIDS mortality by more than 50% in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, the most affected areas of the country. Mother-to-child HIV transmission is said to have been reduced by two-thirds. The Brazilian response to AIDS challenges the perception that it is impossible economically to even consider intervening in the pandemic's course in low-income countries and calls our attention to the possible ways in which biotechnology can be integrated in public policy and can contribute to political and human advancement in developing contexts, even in the absence of an optimal health infrastructure. Affirming the need to combine prevention policies, daring prevention policies with treatment this policy opens a political and moral debate on the role of industry, medical science, government, and philanthropy in providing medications to poor countries and of the immediate and long-term implications of doing so. In my longitudinal study of the Brazilian AIDS program, I address both the rationality and politics of this large-scale treatment policy, as well as the local struggles of marginal and poor individuals and groups as they engage this life in extending mobilization. I'm particularly concerned with how this policy is changing the experience of disease as these people who have been historically left out of interventions make themselves seen by the state and learn to navigate through complex laboratory and medical regimes mediated by all kinds of networks in local ecologies of care. Here, the role of religion is vital, and I mean it literally. Religion has to do with sustaining life in this world. Anthropologist Clifford Gears has elaborated on religion as that human capacity of meaning-making in the face of limit situations. Religious experience is, is at the point where cultural resources fail, he says, where our equipment for living threatens to break down in the face of the radically inexplicable, painfully unbearable, or unjustifiable. 
But what I found most fascinating in my work in Brazil among the poorest and sickest faced with AIDS and now also faced with life-extending technologies was how religion moved from helping them to know how to suffer to becoming a means through which the sufferers could actually construct not another world to go into, but another life. As I saw over the years in a community-run AIDS hospice in the northeast of the country, rather than providing a tone or temper to lived life, religion plays a crucial role in both institutional belonging and treatment adherence. It is a key instrument of biomedical identity and citizenship. CASA was founded in 1992 by a group of male and female prostitutes, transvestites, and intravenous drug users who squatted in an unoccupied hospital in Salvador in the state of Bahia. Soon it became an NGO, and its car maintenance and upgrade became closely tied to funds channeled from the World Bank loan. By taking over the task of immediate care of AIDS patients and overseeing their medical treatment, as I discovered, CASA became a venue of an emerging local health triage. It mediated the relationship between AIDS patients and the haphazard and extremely limited public AIDS services. At present, the state's AIDS unit still only has 16 beds, for example. Over the years, the residents were said to have acquired a new biomedical conscience, quote, culture, as CASA's director told me, as they learned to manage and accumulate health. As CASA's inhabitants put their drives into place, so to speak, their biological condition became the locus of concentration and fabrication. Many referred to the HIV virus as, quote, my little animal. Some patients used to say, I want to let the little animal sleep in me. I frequently heard comments such as, the moment you fall back in what you were and you stop taking the treatment, the virus occupies your place. And the virus occupies, only occupies the place because you let it. Many live, in their own words, quote, in a kind of constant battle. They know that they are trapped between two destinies. Dying of AIDS, like the poor and marginal, that is animalized and the possibility of living pharmacologically into a future, thereby letting the animal sleep and preventing it from consuming the flesh. In the process, many of Casa's inhabitants converted, were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and began to participate in various Pentecostal and other Protestant services. Of course, this is part of an economy of survival. For even though the medication is universally available, to make it work, you need to have ties with philanthropic and pastoral organizations to guarantee free food baskets, contact with AIDS NGOs to assert a visible community and legal accountability, and not the least, channels to access ongoing specialized medical care in a context of inequality and clientelism. But there is more. Religion provides them with an alternative value systems that makes them more than social and statistical void. That is, now they have a proxy community, a proxy family, and a real chance. Evilazio is a single man, illiterate and a carpenter by profession. He said he did not know he had AIDS, even though he had been once to hospital. As his body began to waste, to waste he hid in his shack and was found almost dead by his neighbors, who finally dropped him off at Gaza. 
Ivilazu quickly learned the norms of the house. Quote, the nurses have nothing bad to say about me. I can tell you that for me, casa is the house of God. Valkyrieni, Kaza's first patient to have successfully taken the combined therapies, knows that she is now, quote, another person. As she put it, I have been born again. They both were able to extend their <coughs> lives, as I saw in my visit uh, to Kaza in 2001. They had moved out of the place, gotten married, and were now struggling to find jobs and dealing with a new problem, indebtedness to the local pharmacy since medication for opportunistic diseases was not freely available. In sum, as I have been arguing, religion is a key link between the technical extension of life and death in social abandonment. Non-governmental, sociomedical, and pastoral networks link, through AIDS response, the world of marginality and the state. An ethnographic analysis of these linkages, or lack thereof, can broaden our understanding of what determines disease and health outcomes among these most vulnerable individuals and groups, as well as the everyday practices that define the line between inclusion and exclusion. In my work at Kaza, I could also see that their religious experience did not necessarily lead to empathy or compassion towards others. As Rita, one of Kaza's founder, a former prostitute and intravenous drug users, put it, if they still die with AIDS in the streets, and there are many, it is because they want it. In this context of biotechnology and scarcity, religion in its many forms has also been overwhelmed with the burden of being at once the institutions of state, medicine, and family that in many cases remain so distant from the lives of people even when the treatment is there. Sadly, religious does also crystallizes the very value systems, calculations, and contradictions that are integral to global and local governance. Who shall live, who shall die, and at what cost? Many thanks to this amazing panel that, that has had far too little time to be able to share with us the rich experience and passion that they bring to this subject. I want to open um, discussion up for the next 15 minutes or so to, uh, to some uh, public, public discussion. Uh, but let me just say, first of all, that uh, although the, the major presenting issue here is the worldwide AIDS crisis, we have heard very many interesting things about not only uh, the role of non-government organizations that are faith-based, but also the, the whole background that religion itself, both positively and negatively, brings to this issue. So if I might just quickly summarize a few of these. Um, the, 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 the role of um, religion in providing um, communication across uh, national and ethnic boundaries. Uh, the, the closeness of religion to the grassroots, to where people live. Um, uh, the provision by religious organizations of ready communities. Uh, it's religion's nearness to uh, what Joao has called uh, desperate realities. The constant attention of religious traditions to the deeper issues that lie behind some of the presenting issues, the issues of poverty, the, uh, the lack of uh, uh, treating uh, uh, human beings with dignity. And finally, the religious impulse toward meaning. 
against that background, uh, FBOs, that's the new term I've learned today, faith-based organizations, uh, play the important role of a- actually harnessing uh, those, uh, those energies and phenomena which we associate with, with the religious world. So I would in- invite us in our questioning and in our conversation not only to pay attention to the AIDS crisis, but also to keep these, uh, these wider and deeper issues uh, at the front of, uh, of the discussion. So I will entertain um, uh, questions. And uh, if you have a question for a particular panelist, please say so. Otherwise, the panelists can respond as they will. Please, thank you. Um, my question is directed to, to whomever, but um, we've talked a lot about how churches or um, mosques are responding to AIDS, how has AIDS, and I know that you touched on this, affected the churches and the mosques in terms of their identity? Because the church is a place where people can suffer in community and go through life and community together. And how is this, how is AIDS, particularly when you get into places like um, Zambia and Zimbabwe, where the rates are much higher how has that affected the, the church institutions themselves? You talked about the, um, what was his name, the priest Gideon, who's come out and, and stepped forward as, as a sort of a model for um, living with HIV AIDS. And I'm wondering um, to what extent it's the, the, the AIDS crisis is sort of feeding back to the church and changing the church, the dynamic of that community. Can, can I respond? Gideon is an exception. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I mean, you talk about working in Zimbabwe. I've worked in Zimbabwe for, for many years. Zimbabwe, where one in four adults is living with HIV, there is not a single church leader who's open about living with HIV or has openly died of HIV. Um, and this is unbelievable in a country where there are funerals every single day. So I think the church in many high poverty countries has really not woken up. The other thing that churches have not done is change funeral patterns. Um, funerals happen every day, they waste huge amounts of resources and people will spend their entire life savings on burying somebody and leaving kids without money for food, schooling, clothing. And again, the churches could have a huge role in simplifying funerals and saying it doesn't matter to be buried in a proper wooden coffin with brass handles and having lots of food for all the hangers on. Uh, and it really has not taken these things on board. I find it extraordinary. Um, Zimbabwe is probably the most um, unresponsive church churches in Zimbabwe and I think that's because they have so much else there. They have political strife, they have, they've had you know, drought now and huge food shortages and they feel completely overwhelmed. Um, Can I add something? Mm. <laughs> you shouldn't use the microphones too. Oh. <coughs> Just from... It's on. It's on. Okay. <laughs> Just, um, just from my own personal perspective, when I look at some of the the, the countries in Africa, and I'll, I'll do a little comparison here, the Caribbean and, and, and Africa, where I've worked in both places. 
And what's, what's happening in Africa, um, the situation is changing, not as fast as we want it to change. But you will get some um, faith communities beginning to recognize soon we're not going to have any congregation here unless we begin to look at the situation in a different way because you know the reality is so many are getting buried every day and so some some um, um, some faith communities are beginning to recognize that and when I look back this is probably why I had such an understanding priest when he came to speak to me when I was um, extremely ill now I know having worked in in, in the Caribbean Boy, it, it's nowhere near there. I mean, things right. are not even, it's the, the faith community and um, those living with HIV and AIDS or that affected community, it's like water and oil. There's almost no mixing at all. So um, I would say in Africa, there is a certain, we're beginning to get there. We're not there yet, but we're beginning to get there. I mean, all the wonderful work that is getting done, eventually we are um, beginning to get there, but still a whole lot more needs to be done. It is my experience uh, in faith communities, specifically in Africa, that things are turning around. Uh, I just shared with you that there is now nine national offices within the headquarters of Catholic, Protestant, and Muslim communities. That is revolutionary, that you can now go to uh, the heads of Christian denominations in Zimbabwe and find a national HIV AIDS office that is having the right conversation on HIV. I think that um, that has been the, the ability for the Bob and Gilead to go in and establish these national offices has been the impact of the epidemic. The church feels the impact of the epidemic. Uh, I just left Zimbabwe two weeks ago and uh, the head of the Protestant uh, Zimbabwe Christian Council was talking about how he goes into uh, the cemetery and stays all day because of one funeral after the next. So the impact is definitely there and people, the church, when we say the church, let us be clear on who we're talking about because oftentimes we're talking about your experience with that individual pastor and your experience with that individual pastor becomes your perception of the church. When I'm talking, I'm talking about the governing body, the voice of, the, of those pastors. Not the single pastor, but the bishop. The consular bishop, who is the authority over that pastor, who appoints that pastor. So we're talking about the structure of the church because oftentimes, if you're talking to an individual pastor, that individual pastor will send you to hell. So let's not confuse the local church with the church universal, the, the headquarters, the voice of, of the people. So I see the, the impact, the, the tremendous suffering is definitely uh, changing. We have uh, churches that are now doing voluntary testing. Uh, they're very much getting engaged, but what they need are resources. They need training. More, we, want, we, we want the church to be where we are, but they've never been trained to be where we are. There is a big void in Africa 22 years into this epidemic where most folks have not heard the word HIV, where there has not been training. And also, I would be remiss if I did not speak to the cultural peace and the cemeteries with my dear sister here. Black folks, we believe in the, in the life everlasting. 
We believe in eternal life. It is our history, which is why you find gold and silver in ancient tombs. We don't equate feeding someone today and eternal life. It may be right or, doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong from your perspective. It is a historical, cultural issue. And we find that some of the challenges that we face, if you do not respect culture, then there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. And the worst thing you can do is to mess with folks' Jesus and eternal life when you're dealing with the church, regardless of whether you believe it or not. We had a very interesting conversation over lunch, and I don't know, Christine, if you'd like to pitch in, because, because we talked a little bit about the, the way, for example, that at, at a larger level, the policy setting level, uh, religion plays such a critical, critical role, particularly in terms of where money is allocated in the U.S., in terms of, of the AIDS fund, you know, which kind of programs, and so on and so forth. So there is a, a strong revival of institutional evangelical participation in, in, in budget setting for AIDS programs worldwide, and I think this is a very important issue putting me on the spot here. Do you want me? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I think when we're talking about the sort of shift of engaging faith-based responses, it depends on which level we're talking about. Um, certainly at the community level, we've heard a lot of examples of how communities of faith-based uh, communities have been there working from the very beginning and how they need more support to scale up their responses. Um, so I don't think it's any surprise for at the community level. I think what has shifted is a shift more at the policy level in terms of engaging faith responses um, and rightly so. They need to be, you know, at the forefront of the policies and decision-making and being involved in mechanisms such as the Global Fund, which we see the faith-based organizations have not necessarily been part of those donor structures. Um, certainly with that comes other influences in terms of influence on policy. Uh, we've heard some mention of abstinence-only programming. Um, that's certainly been an issue in the U.S. government in terms of ensuring that 33% of the prevention resources are used for abstinence-only programming. And there were a lot of politics involved with making that decision, and I think a lot of faith-based organizations did play into that. So I think, you know, a lot of good is being done in terms of involving faith-based organizations. They're certainly a critical partner, in fact, perhaps probably the most important partner, but with that does come some politicking that can affect um, policies in terms of how we provide resources to communities. Yes. I don't know that it's different. What I would say is that the, the position, especially from um, coming from Africa, the position of women as compared to men is very low. They've got very much lower status. And that is, um, one, on a cultural level. Two, on the level of um, having access to resources. You know, I mean, there are these issues about inheritance, can a woman own land, and all those things that play into it. So therefore, um, the woman doesn't really have um, um, as much or access to as much as a man does. And so because of that, when, um, for example, when there's a situation where a woman becomes HIV positive, oftentimes, for whatever reasons, the woman is the one who's diagnosed first. She's the one who's blamed for bringing it into the home. So um, cultures in Africa also accept 
the fact that men can be promiscuous. It's okay for men to have more than one woman, but we look at HIV and it was said very clearly, it's, it's a sin, and if you're a woman and you have it, were you promiscuous? But it's okay for the man to be promiscuous. So there's sort of all those dynamics that play into the fact that at the end of the day, the woman um, probably experiences the biggest brunt of the stigma and discrimination. Um, the woman is the one who will breastfeed. If you don't breastfeed, um, you know, everybody assumes you're HIV positive. Of course, the man will never have to do that. In, in essence, the man can probably keep the fact that he's HIV pretty private until he's almost dying. But for the woman, there are all these signs, you know, and when she goes to the antenatal clinic, she's likely to be tested. So there, there are various ways to, to, to find out. So the woman is in a very much more vulnerable position. I'd like to add that here in the, in the U.S., in the African-American community, it's just, I would say, just the opposite. And that is that I think that the, the, the African-American man gets more stigmatized because of the homosexual issue. Um, and uh, often if, 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 a, if, a, if a black man has HIV, it is all, it's automatically assumed that he is gay. You know, nothing else kind of comes. That's the, fourth, the first thing you, you know. Whereas with women, it's the poor, the poor women who was married and, you know, she was a God-fearing woman and, you know, and look what happened. Her, look what her, her bisexual husband uh, did to her. And I want to say that here in this country, many, I would say most churches got involved with HIV because of women. Because after four, and the pastors test, give testimony that after the fourth, fifth woman came and said, Pastor, I have HIV, you know, because of my husband, then his whole constitution was changed to do something about HIV. But as long as it was a homosexual disease, he saw no need to do it. But what happens is that once the church has a response, everybody... The, it, it revolutionizes the whole response to HIV, and everybody becomes, um, you know, uh, welcome in that, whether you gay, straight, or, or whatever. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. What? Oh, I'm sorry. If you, you, and then you. Oh, my, <laughs> my name is Corey White. Um, and then also going the other way, as, 
as a religious organization being involved in accepting money from donors? Uh, what say do they then get over your autonomy as a religious organization that, um, for, for example, with the bomb in Gilead, um, driven by a very um, obvious scriptural reference and aim there, how has that balance occurred? And I don't know from where your funding all comes, but I would be curious to hear. Um, also, I remember reading a couple of years ago a New York Times article about the miracle of prayer and healing people with HIV AIDS, and I don't remember what happened. And I'm, I'm curious if you have encountered this, and you spoke specifically about the power of prayer. And are there personal examples that you could give? And have you have you seen this, or have those studies, if you're familiar with that article, been backed up scientifically? I don't know. I would just be curious to hear. Uh, That's probably enough questions for now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Corey. Would someone like to take up at least one of those? And um, we have just a few minutes, and I want to be sure to get to you. So. I can respond maybe to the donor question and um, the mapping of the networks, mm -hmm. and there may be more information here. In fact, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think there are a lot of faith networks out there, both from the Christian side, the Muslim side, and I will also say the independent church side, if we're just talking about Africa. Um, and um, I, I think several organizations have gone through an exercise of mapping, and I can tell you that the U.S. government regionally in Africa is actually giving our project funds to do exactly that because what we don't have are sort of the interfaith networks to figure out, we know the councils, but just sort of on the continent-wide, what's going on, um, and perhaps my colleagues have further information on networks. Um, but in terms of donors, with the U.S. government, it's very clear. If you're managing U.S. government resources, and if you're an organization accepting U.S. government resources and you're faith-based, um, you cannot use U.S. government resources to proselytize, and you cannot US, use U.S. government resources to discriminate based on religious affiliation, your service delivery. Um, so that is very it's, it's stated there, it's in the contracts, and certainly any faith-based organization accepting U.S. government money would be aware of that. And it's certainly an interesting challenge then to monitor um, the compliance of that. And that's a, probably a more difficult thing. Yeah. Um, same with the U.K. government. Um, it will not be absolutely um, in, ensure that it's not used for evangelical work, um, any, any UK government money. And in fact, um, we, we get money from UK, from EU, from USAID, and from um, foundations like Elton John and Comic Relief. Now, it's actually very difficult to get money from um, uh, organizations like the EU, Elton John and Comic Relief for anything that has a faith-based name, even even if you can um, show that it's not um, for um, for evangelical work. Um, so it's actually, um, there's been a huge history in the UK, particularly and Europe, of not wanting to fund anything with any faith-based, um, uh, even even a name. We are, the Bomb and Gilead, we are funded by the U.S. government, um, as well as other foundations like Ford and Bill and Melinda Gates and all those wonderful people. Um, we have never had a problem. We are not missionary-based. We do not uh, trying to get nobody to come to Jesus. Uh, we are trying to get folks to address HIV in the context of their Jesus. As one of the people who sat with CDC for since 1998 when they were beginning a faith initiative, 
um, we were there helping them to understand when you work in African, African American faith communities, you have to talk about Jesus. You cannot, it's not about bringing folks to Jesus, but you have to bring reference to the people's belief. So I think that there's always a kind of, uh, un uh, you have to understand that there's not missionary work going on, we're not bringing nobody to Jesus, but when you're talking to the faith community, they talk in the context of Jesus and Muhammad and Allah. And if you're not talking that language, you're not reaching the people. In addition to prayer, we are people that believe in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer will heal you. Now, there's also, I bring my theological uh, uh, colleagues in, and we talk about we have never seen the actual evidence that uh, prayer has actually healed someone from HIV. But there are those who have said it has. And who am I to say that it has not? A pastor in, in Nigeria sat with me one day and he said, you know, we don't have any treatment here in Nigeria. All we can give, all we have to give the people is prayer. All we have is prayer because we don't have treatment. We don't have rubber gloves. We don't have testing kits. All we have is prayer. So we put our faith in the power of prayer. Can I just one, one quick comment uh, to add to that? And I, it's, it's more in, in line with the power of prayer. Uh, one thing that I'd like to say just from my own personal experience and um, having worked with many other people who are HIV positive, the um, whole idea of well-being uh, is one that I wouldn't say it's just centered around the ARV drugs or maybe nutrition, but your state of mind is so important. And so um, what was just said here about the power of prayer or meet them where they're at, whether it's in um, parts of my country where they worship um, the god of Mount Kenya or Mount Kilimanjaro, wherever, there is a super being that they believe in. And so you meet them there and you get them to focus and, and, and ask for strength or, you know, spirituality, basically. And it, it's, there, there is a lot of power in that because um, when I look at HIV, just like any other chronic disease, it's, it's about mind over matter. What do you believe in? And what can, can push you to that level? So there's a lot of work with the mind to get you um, to feel better. I don't know about healing, but if others have said they've been healed, but I know you can definitely feel a lot better and, and enjoy a better quality of life. And now, because you have waited so long, <laughs> yours is the last question. <laughs> uh, you touched on it a little bit, actually. But in terms of prayer, Responses, um, but has there been an equal theological 
<laughs> um, for 15 years, we, the Bomb and Gilead, we have a, a library of publications that uh, we, have, we have a theological team of theologians around the country. Uh, we have a book on discussions of homosexuality in the, in the African-American church, and we have sermons on HIV uh, by Reverend Dr. James Forbes and Bishop T.D. Jakes and Cornell West and the people that, the preacher's preacher, if you will, and, and understanding that, again, we expect the pastor and the theologian to know, but they too need to be taught. So our approach has been over these years to get the leaders to go into their, their uh, upper room, if you will, and, and, and look at the biblical text and provide a new a paradigm, a new paradigm on how we address HIV theologically. And we're doing the same thing with our, our African theologians on the on the continent. So if you would, you know, uh, look, if you want some of those resources, please feel free to call us or go on our website um, because that's, that's also a part of what we're doing. Not only the Bomb and Gilead, but other organizations are doing are doing the same uh, same thing around um, uh, bringing a new theological voice to HIV. Let me just, uh, just briefly address that. I actually participated in some, uh, as an advisor to some, uh, some attempts to produce some theology around AIDS and suffering uh, organized through the World Council of Churches. And it's very difficult because uh, if you bring people from de several denominations, several backgrounds to come up with a, with a final document, it's extremely difficult. And my sense was always that at the end, it was very frustrating at the end of, of the meetings because I always felt like the suffering person was missing. The theologians, like in Job's story, were there trying to explain the suffering, trying to find an etiology or a cause or an explanation, you know. But in the end, there was a very, uh, there was a marked absence, you know, of the, of the suffering body itself. So, so, so that might say something about, you know, theology. And I think the efforts that you are bringing up and showing is that, that there's really a definite challenge to find uh, words for this, for this tragedy. Just and just to also add, um, in, in terms of the World Council of Churches has a fairly extensive program working with the theologians, specifically around HIV-AIDS. And in fact, there's a project now because what hasn't been re recognized enough are the women theologians. And so actually we'll be supporting the circle of African women theologians um, as part of that as well. So. I think we have probably exhausted the, the energy and this fine panel, and uh, the time is coming to, to think about supper and about rest. I thank you for your attention and for your presence, and especially I thank this panel for bringing us uh, so, so much wisdom and so much attention. Thank you so thank much. You.